It's with mixed feelings that we come to the end of this section of Scripture for me. I have grown in my understanding of it and um, have grown to love it uh, very much over the last couple of months. And we come to the final crescendo, as it were, of this short series in 1 Corinthians 13 that we began several weeks ago. And you might remember that it began with Paul setting forth if you have all the tongues, amazing tongues and gifts and prophecy, but you have not love, you are nothing. And as he draws the, the chapter to a close, he brings up a similar thing that temporal spiritual gifts compared to the enduring eternal nature of God is nothing by comparison. Think about it. The Holy Spirit illuminates our minds to understand this inspired word. We see Christ on every page of Scripture by faith and and by looking. But it is imperfect. It's an imperfect knowledge in this life. In other words, it's so limited because we are so finite. In this life, we understand really so little compared to when we see Him face to face. We cry out with Paul in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. We understand microscopically, but in that day, it will be the universe as it were. There's such a comparison. Paul writes in Colossians where he says, speaking of Christ himself, in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And of course, we know Christ by faith. We've been saved by him. We have his spirit dwelling on the inside, agreeing with us that these things are indeed true. But we are so limited in this life. When we think of the glory of heaven, being there face to face with your Savior. And I know it's hard to just pause for 30 minutes a day as Richard Baxter, the Puritan, would admonish, take 30 minutes a day and do nothing but meditate on heaven. We can't do that for three minutes without being distracted, most of us. And I'm including myself in that. Baxter observes this as he wrote his Saint's Everlasting Rest, an 800-page behemoth that largely has been condensed and edited down nowadays, but uh, he writes, this is one of the quotes from this book, in our first paradise in Eden, there was a way to get out, but no way to get back in. When they sinned, they were cast out of that first paradise, right? And the angel was there with the sword. They were not permitted to come back in. But he says, but our heavenly paradise, there is a way to go in, but no way to get out. In other words, ultimate security. My dog Bunyan, of whom I was sitting outside praying uh, this morning, and he was chewing on a bone over there, and I realized that, that the only world that he will ever know is this world. He's got no, no other destination, right? And I'm sorry, little ones, all dogs don't go to heaven uh, as far as we know what's been revealed. Uh, but that's it. This, it's this world. It's this, this world in the Aaron household. That is his realm of knowledge. But for the Christian, we are made for another world. Do you understand that? This world is not all. We are pilgrims. We're just passing through. We were, we're made for another world. We are not home in this world because we are citizens of heaven. And that includes even now. If you are born again, one man observes Christians are not citizens of earth trying to get to heaven, but citizens of heaven making their way through this world. And that's, that's essentially what it is. We need to remember where our citizenship is. So let's read verses 8 to 13. Find your place. 1 Corinthians 13. <clears throat> Reading this last section. And our text will be verses 11 to 13, as we took up uh, verse 8 to 10 last time. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will be done away, or they will cease, rather. If there is knowledge, they will be done away. 
For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. And when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray once again. Father, we confess that we are weak, that we are easily distracted, and we need your assistance even during this hour. And so, Lord, as we continue in our worship as to uh, the aspect of hearing the word of God proclaimed, we pray that you would give us your assistance. We pray that you'd pour out your spirit in manifold portions upon this, um, the membership of this church and every person in this room to assist unto that end. And Lord, as we really deal with very deep things, give us understanding, give us insight, give us a greater hunger and thirst for righteousness and a longing for glory to be with you face to face, to be delivered from this sin-cursed world and bodies that are afflicted in numerous ways, and to be with you forever with no more sin. O Lord, hasten the day. Help us to long for such a day, and even as we contemplate the verses before us, give us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I didn't reread the the middle section, which is sort of the, you know, it builds up to verses 4 to 7. We've spent, I believe it was at least four sermons on those 15 qualities as far as what love does. Verse 7, the the last four kind of are linked together. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And of course, believing is faith and hope there. And so those middle two we see down in the last verse before us. But he says in verse 8, love never fails. Sort of a, a summary statement. That is, it never disintegrates. It never stops existing. It lasts forever. It, 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 it never falls apart. It's never incomplete. It's never invalid. There's no expiration date on it. Love endures forever. It never fails. And the idea of this love never failing, you have to think of God's immeasurable love for His bride, for those for whom Christ died. That is an unfailing love that goes through all eternity. And what a glorious thing that is for us as the children of God. Love even excels the many gifts and performances and pomp that the church in Corinth had where they became so proud their head was this big. Love exceeds all of that. And our love to God, of course, flows because of His great love for us. We love because He first loved us. Well, He says that prophecy will be done away. He says later knowledge will be done away. The same verb, but in the middle, tongues will cease. And we talked about that being in the middle voice, which is the idea that they will cease on their own. And as the apostles faded off the scene, the gifts of tongue, the authenticating gifts that were there to validate the church in the apostolic age, no longer needed to be present. And so they passed off the scene. In fact, in there's a... Uh, one of the church, early church fathers, Clement of Rome, wrote a letter to Corinth in AD 96. And of its 65 chapters, he doesn't mention tongues at all. So already 50 years or 40 years after the writing of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, there's no mention of this. And so those had ceased, as Paul puts it. When the perfect comes, you have no need of knowledge and prophecy. And what we're talking about in that aspect is revelatory gifts, new prophecy, foretelling, and supernatural knowledge that that comes from God. There's no need for that. Now, there's a sense in which the non-revelatory sense that, of course, prophecy and knowledge continues. Why? The church continues to study. There's more and more theological discoveries, not necessarily discovering new truths that were never discovered before, but a greater understanding of what's been revealed in the Word of God, and then the prophetic nature of declaring this is what God has said. That goes on, 
until the end. But revelatory gifts have ceased as the apostles passed off the scene. The duty of the church to preach and to teach and to evangelize endures until Christ comes back again, until the clouds be rolled back as a scroll and he descends. We must be faithful with that call. So today, we will be looking at the perfection of love. Um, I don't even remember where I got these P's, very common. Several commentators used it. It might have been Matthew Henry at first. The prerequisite of love, love, uh, if you do the gifts, if you have the gifts, but you have not love, you're nothing. The portrait of love is the middle. And then the permanence of love, love never fails and endures forever. And now the perfection of love that we'll see when we are perfected with him in glory. And Paul illustrates this several ways. And as I was reading, maybe you, 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 you noticed that when I was a child, but now that I'm an adult, I can put away those things. I see something of a reflection dimly, and we'll unpack what that might mean. But then face to face, there's these comparisons. Here's these three virtues, but the greatest is love. And so we'll go ahead and just walk through this text. Verse 11, first point, immaturity versus maturity. Immaturity versus maturity. He says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. The verb did away is exactly the same verb up in verse 8, where he talks about prophecy and knowledge being done away. So there's a repetition of that verb. But think about it. When you were a child, you needed many things. When you were a young child, you needed somebody to feed you. You needed your diaper changed. Hopefully that was changed regularly. A pacifier to pacify you as you were crying and uncomfortable. A stroller for your your mom to push you around and so forth. But then even just think of the, the idea of thinking and reasoning as a child. A very young child could see one of these airplanes that will pass over while we're out in the courtyard and try to, how does that even stay up in the sky? If I have a toy airplane and I go to throw it, it goes plop, right? How does that stay up in the sky? In other words, the child is so limited in its understanding, or a ball, how does the ball bounce type of thing? A child cannot think like an adult. They're very limited. And Paul here uses the past tense. He refers to his own childhood now entering the state of mature manhood. That's the idea here. He compares two periods of his life with the conclusion that he's no longer interested in those childish things. He's enraptured with the maturity, with with mature things. The word he uses for child really means young child. It can mean infant. He actually uses it in chapter 3 and verse 1 where he talks about He says, now, brethren, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. In other words, telling the the church at Corinth, you're so immature, you're like an infant, basically. It's the word that Paul uses in Ephesians 4, that we are no longer children tossed to and fro, but every wind of doctrine. That's the word that he uses here. Now, some commentators think there's some connection here between the speak, think, and reason to tongues, prophecy, and knowledge. I don't see that necessarily being the case because of the argument that he's building, and maybe that will make more sense. Another thing that we need to um, set aside is that Paul is not slamming their immaturity here, that, that they're, they're you know, babblings and, and their tongues and all of that. Paul is making a much greater point, which becomes crystal clear in verse 12, which we'll get to in a moment. Paul is not comparing a babbling infant like you, Corinth, you're like a babbling infant, compared to an articulate adult. Paul would not even put himself on that level, right? He says, I struggle with my words and even my appearance in 2 Corinthians. He gives that in his, I call that his autobiography. But what Paul is doing here in verse 11, brethren, is he's using imperfect verbs, four of them, working up to the perfect tense where he sets aside that I have now become a man and I did away with those things. These things are incomplete, leading to something, but I've done away with those now that I've become a man. I've become mature. 
And this clearly illustrates that Paul is talking about maturity. You see, when the perfect comes, brethren, there's no longer any need for little teddy bear or the security blanket or for the nightlight that you had as a child. There's no need for those things. Christendom, in an excellent sermon on this passage, says this, it's a contrast between our present knowledge of God. That is, right now we, we do think like a child and all that. Our present knowledge is so immature compared. So he says the present knowledge of God to that which we will enjoy in his presence in the resurrected life. I hope some of you had a chance to read at least part of Jonathan Edwards' great sermon, Heaven, A World of Love. I put a link to it in the church email Last night, here's a quote from it, speaking of Christians. Their hearts shall be full of love. That which was in the heart on earth is but the grain of a mustard seed shall be the great tree in heaven. The soul that in this world had only a little spark of divine love in it, in heaven there shall be, as it were, turned into a bright and ardent flame like the sun in its fullness and in its brightness when there is no spot in it. You see what he's saying here? It's just by comparison. We think we know so much, and and I love theology. I read a lot, but the more I study, the more I know what I don't know, right? But but even theologians can get to a place where they think they've got it all figured out. But the idea of this text and the idea of what Edwards is saying is that's a spark compared to the full flame, There'll be no comparison when you see him face to face. When Israel had sinned, God had compared them to foolish children. Jeremiah, through the prophet Jeremiah, uh, chapter 4, for my people are foolish and they know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good, they do not know. See, when a child grows up, puts away foolish things. The proverb says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Charles Hodge summarizes this in his commentary. Simply put, Paul does not want us to be satisfied with the partial and the imperfect. Paul says, now we know in part Some of us have read the Bible 30 times. Some of us have attended the greatest pastor's conferences that that have ever put on and listened to thousands of sermons. But we have not even begun to plumb the depths of God in our understanding of who He is and His glorious attributes. The mystery of the Godhead is something that remains a mystery in this life. We do not have it all figured out. As Job would say, behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. How small a whisper do we hear of them, but the thunder of his power who can understand? So, immaturity versus maturity. Verse 12, reflection versus reality. Reflection versus reality. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. (coughs) Excuse me. Now I know in part... But then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. What is this idea of a mirror dimly? A couple of illustrations. Um, Our dear brother Marlon was on deployment over a year ago, and Melanie, of course, remained here. And when he was there, he no doubt had a picture of his beautiful wife, Melanie, that he would look at every day while he's on that long deployment. Probably would show it to his friends, this is my beautiful wife, right? And all of that. And, and, but then when the deployment ends and they're reunited, it's not as though he puts that picture in the entry of the apartment and when he comes home from work, he walks past his wife and goes and kisses the picture, right? That, that was just a, it was a representation of who Melanie was. It's not really Melanie. He wants the real thing. And so too, when you have the reality, you have no need of the reflection. So too, when we see him face to face, we, we have no need of this. And, and, and there's an irony here because ancient mirrors in that day were not made of glass. They were polished metal. And Corinth 
was actually known, and they were famous for their, the finest bronze mirrors that you can get. What I've read is they were typically not hung on a wall, but like this, flat, but that's neither here nor there. But, you know, you can polish metal to the point to where you can see a pretty solid representation of your face. But Paul says, now we see in a mirror dimly. Dimly. What does that mean? Does that mean poor lighting? Does that mean it's not shiny enough? The word literally means an enigma or in a riddle. Uh, that's the idea, or, or a puzzling nature to it. And I think that's exactly, Brother Chris read for us, just turn back to Numbers, chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12. Paul likely has this passage in mind. I'm not going to reread the whole thing, but Miriam and Aaron speaking against Moses as the context. Verse 5 Then the Lord came down on a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent, and he called Aaron and Miriam. And when they had both come forward, he said, these are the words of God, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses." He is faithful in all my household. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, can be translated face to face, even openly and not in dark sayings or in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses. And so that little phrase there in verse 7, I think is parallel to what Paul is saying here. In other words, there was something different about Moses. All the other prophets, there was visions and knowledge and dreams. But with Moses, it was mouth to mouth. It was face to face. There was something altogether unique with him. And Corinth was not ignorant about Moses. He wrote about him several times in chapter 10. We were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, where he makes that illusion of a baptism there. We already read 2 Corinthians 3 as well. Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away because he was face to face. He had to put his veil over his face when he came down because he glowed. Verse 18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image. Now, this word for dimly, riddle, uh, uh, a puzzle, an enigma, but it can also mean indirectly. It's the only time this Greek word occurs. There's two definitions for it. It's a similar idea um, for sure, but it gives the sense that we see by reflection in the mirror with emphasis on anticipation of a direct personal encounter. You see, in a mirror, you only get the reflection of the reality. If I was looking into a mirror here and seeing all of you, I would only be getting a a reflection of the congregation that is scattered amongst all of these pews. In other words, if I'm standing looking at this polished piece of bronze, and I see my wife pass behind me, it's the reflection of her. It's not necessarily her until I turn around and I see her face to face. And then it is her indeed. So I think one of the commentators, Gordon Fee, really gets the idea of what this is saying. He says this, Paul's point in this analogy then is not that our current understanding and relationship of God is distorted, that is a mirror reflecting poorly, but rather that it is indirect. The nature of looking into a mirror compared to the relationship we will enjoy with him when in the future when we see him face to face. So for now... Our fellowship with God, as it were, is indirect. It's not face-to-face. We have the Scriptures. We have the Spirit of God. We have one another. We have Bible teachers. But it's indirect in the sense that it will be altogether different when we are with Him face-to-face. It appears 
And Paul is saying that there will come a time when we will know divine truths directly just like Moses did because we will be with him face to face. In our glorified states, we will know him and experience him even beyond what Moses did as a mere man. In the past, he would reveal himself in his Shekinah glory to only certain individuals. But as the psalmist says, and saw, or Isaiah 40 rather, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it all together. The beatific vision when we come face to face with Christ, the, the, the beautiful image of his face and his love and his, his nail-scarred hands as he reaches out and we come face to face with him. Oh, what a glory that is. And by the way, as he says, and he uses this, this phrase, face to face, it's, it's a little bit of a play on words. It's the preposition in between is towards, and that's actually uh, at the beginning of, of the word for face. It's prosopon, pros, prosopon. So pros, three times, towards, towards, towards. We will be towards him in glory. It's vastly dim- different to see an image of something than compared to see something face to face. Um, I hate to draw attention to it, but the poor art on the windows of which are covered now, don't try to look at it, that is a poor representation of what it will be when we see Christ. Amen? Very poor. For those listening, there's some poor artwork that the other church had put up that we cover. Anyway, uh, so he compares our human minds being unable to grasp the full meaning of God's truth compared to the future when God will grant us a perfect but growing knowledge, right? We're not going to know everything all at once. Eternity will be a grand discovering of, of understanding more and more the covenant of redemption and, and the persons of the Holy Trinity and how they love each other and how they work together will be an awesome time. Notice how he says it here. He says it twice. Uh, for now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then he's comparing two eras, as it were. Now, this is how we see it, but then there'll be a stark t- contrast. It's like if I said my laptop works, it's a partially functioning laptop, you would say, well, I'm waiting for a new model so that I can get my work done or whatever. That, that's the idea Paul is waiting for this new error to come when he will see his Lord face to face. And let me ask you today, perhaps you've come today to church bruised and battered by the world. Perhaps you've come proud and, and very uh, happy with your performance this last week. Whatever the situation may be, do you long to see your Savior face to face? If he were to return right now, would you be discouraged in some way and say, oh, but I had all these plans for the next week or month or whatever? Or would you be ecstatic to see him face to face who died for your sins, to know him more fully, to see him more clearly? We studied 1 John a while back and says, beloved, we are the children of God now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him even as he is. In the very last chapter of the Bible, the glorious picture of heaven, those last couple chapters, in 22 and verse 4, it says, and they will see his face. And they will have his name on their foreheads. Do you really believe that this will be your greatest joy that you've ever experienced? Can you say with the psalmist in Psalm 16, you have made me to know the path of life. You've made me to know the path of life and in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. Can you say that with the psalmist? Do you ever think on the future state, the eternal state? And of course, the flip side of this, which I don't have time to deal with in this sermon, but we will carry on the theme of heaven, Lord willing, the next week or two, we have to talk about hell. 
It's not as though there's a, a blissful heaven and you know, universal salvation, everyone's going to heaven as many would try to teach. But those that reject Christ and reject the good news of the gospel will spend an eternity in hell. But heaven, this destination for born-again Christians, this place of where we long to go, and maybe it's because the older writers had, they wrote so much about heaven. They wrote books about heaven. They preached about heaven and hell. Why? There was so much more death around them. I mean, it's, it's around us now to some degree, but even in the common family, a family of six, for example, in the Puritan era would most likely have lost three of those children to death, either at birth or before age five. And so death was everywhere. You grew up, just think, you, whoever, you're sitting next to one of your siblings. If she would have died at age two, that would forever be etched in your memory. Or losing a mom in childbirth for the children. And, and so you, that's why you see so much more writing and, and so much more sober-mindedness in that day. Whereas now it's all packaged away and, and, and hidden for the most part. Paul goes on. He says the last phrase, um, Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. The word he uses, what know fully is epigonosto. It means, it means that idea to know fully compared to just knowing by, um, it's more knowing by experience and knowing in full measure versus just a knowledge about a fact. And he uses the future and the present here and then that, the, the passive here that, that uh, just as I have been fully known by God, I will know all things fully. You see, as one man said, in this world, we only touch the hem of the garment as to the understanding of God. William Hendrickson says this, at the consummation, our fragmentary knowledge will be replaced. Our notions, illusions, misconceptions about ourselves, the world, and God will be dispelled and clarified. So we will know God directly. So we've seen immaturity, maturity, that illustration. We've seen reflection, reality, and even under that, the not knowing and, and being fully known. But now we come to verse 13. Christian virtues and eternal love. Now, faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul's praise of love now reaches a climax, as it were, as he ends this chapter. And remember the broader context that this is in the context of the spiritual gifts in chapter 12, in which he resumes in chapter 14, but he feels the need and the urgency to speak of the excellence of love tucked right into the middle. Now, this beautiful triad, faith, hope, and love, we can admit has been hijacked by the world. It's been hijacked by Hallmark. It's in millions of cards. And so that unbelievers can say, oh, isn't that a nice thing? It's been hijacked without its full biblical meaning. But not only is love greater than any spiritual gift, as he's already made clear, it's greater than any other virtue as well. The difference between temporal spiritual gifts and Christian, good Christian virtues, but love excels them all. Now, what does he mean here? These three virtues, faith, hope, and love. It's a familiar triad that Paul uses several times. He says that these abide in the NAS, a valid translation is remain. It's the same word in John 15, talking about the vine and the branches and us abiding, remaining in Christ. And so these three abide, these three remain to some degree. These are eternal virtues, but the greatest of these is love. Think about it. God is love. It's his very essence. But God is not faith and he is not hope, is he? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so in time, today, and all eternity, the concept of love remains foundational 
to our relationships, our relationships with God, our relationships with one another. In heaven, our faith is not a trusting so much in what Christ has done as trusting the Father to be capable of sustaining us. Our hope is accomplished expectation. You're right, it's accomplished. We're with them face to face. But love is the icing over all of these. And this love was present in the covenant of redemption, which is a theological term that talks about how the Father, Son, and Spirit in full communion and in 100% satisfaction with each other planned to create the world. And elected a people unto Himself that would be chosen They didn't do that because they were lonely, because they wanted a new project to work on, but out of love, love for one another within the Godhead, but also love for those for which they were choosing. Now, it says, but now, faith, hope, and love. Now, there's some debate over what now means. Remember up in verse 12, now and then he used twice, now and then he used twice. This is a different word, but it can mean two things. It can mean temporal or a logical conclusion. And those that would say that it's temporal has the idea that when the perfect becomes sight, hope is finally realized, love abides forever as it is the attribute to bridge the current age to the eschatological reality. But the idea of a logical conclusion, but now, here's these three virtues, and they abide forever. It's the idea that that in some sense they carry on for all eternity. And that is the position that I have landed on. You see the triad in Paul, many places, Galatians 5.5, For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness, for in Christ. Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, it means anything but faith working through love. The hope of righteousness, faith working through love. You see it in Ephesians 4, see it in Colossians 1. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So like bookends on this paragraph, love never fails And the greatest of these is love enduring through all eternity. Let me quote William Hendrickson once again for us to bring some clarity. The scriptures teach that the faith and hope, the faith and hope pertain to the present age, but they cease when faith becomes sight and hope becomes reality. Saving faith in Jesus Christ comes to an end. But another aspect of faith, namely trusting in him, remains forever. Similarly, a hope in Jesus Christ is timeless. And 1 Corinthians 15, two chapters later, Paul will say this in verse 19. If we had hoped in Christ in this life only, we are men most to be pitied, which indicates that there indeed will be a hope, an ongoing hope, that these virtues continue in some manner. Of course, we know Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hope is a confident expectation, but in, in eternity, the difference will be that our hope will never waver because we are face to face with him. Now, why does Paul say the greatest of these is love? He's been building the case throughout really this whole chapter. What does it mean to be the greatest? Does it mean it lasts longer, greatest in duration? Um, it's the, it's the term that is used is it's a comparison, but also a superlative. It's, we see it in Matthew 11. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. There's no one greater. Uh, and so that's the idea here. The greatest of these is love. Why? Love is an attribute of God. Number one, hope is not an attribute of God, Right? Faith is not an attribute of God, but love is. And then also, as I already said, he is not hope and faith, but he is love. It's the very essence of his nature. By this, we know his love, that he's laid down his life for us on the cross. What incredible love, what incredible commitment, what incredible dedication to the people of God to go through such agony 
Love is the greatest. The eternal Godhead loved each other, the other persons from even eternity past. In fact, Augustine says this, you can't have the love of God apart from the triune God. Love in its fullness exists between the persons of the Godhead. You see what Augustine is saying, if you don't even understand something of the mystery of the Trinity, you can't even understand or even have the love of God. And that's another fascinating feature when we go to heaven. It's not just seeing Christ face to face. It's the triune God together, woven together for us. What a wonderful thing it will be to enter in into that day. Do you long for it? In an instant, you will be taken immediately into the presence of God to be absent from the body, brethren, is to be present with the Lord. Do you believe that? When you breathe your last, whether it be prematurely or in old age, you immediately go into the presence of the Lord. Do you long for that? You long to see Him. And today we must come to grips with, I have not loved God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I have not loved my neighbor as I ought By God's grace, I'm making some strides in those things. But the reality is, is that I've fallen so far short, but someday there will be no deficiency. And our love to Him will be in purity. Even our love to the other saints will be in fullness. Rejoicing that one day you will be able to love God as you were called to and love the fellow saints as you were called to and that's the picture that edwards paints towards the end of his sermon is the interwoven connection of the saints in glory and and i don't want to get ahead of myself i know of another quote coming but what a glorious thing there's no more envy lust jealousy nothing like that just pure desiring the best and love in fact if you think of what is the crescendo of your salvation here today is it Your justification, that day I was declared righteous. Is it sanctification, being made more and more holy? Is it the new birth, the regeneration? I submit to you, glorification is the crescendo. It's when you depart from this life and you experience in in all of its newness and wonderfulness is to enter into heaven and to see Him face to face. Well, a couple points of application. If you're sitting here today and you are not a Christian, and you know you're not a Christian, you must not deceive yourself into thinking, I can't wait to go to that place. That's going to be so great. Someday I'll make a profession. Maybe at some point I'll consider these things. Wake up! Because your time is limited. You cannot keep putting off the fact that someday I'll get right with God. Someday I'll make that profession. You may be made to stand before Him today before the day is over. And if you are outside of Christ, if you haven't clung and run to Christ and repented of your sin, you will be cast into everlasting torment. And that's not for a week. It's not for a year. It's a million years will be but the first second on the clock of eternity. You know, sometimes we can bear punishment. You know, somebody that says, well, I got 10 years in prison and I've got 50 more years to live in my life. Okay, that's not so bad. There will be no end to this. And furthermore, you won't be treated like you are and have a country club of a prison. You'll be in eternal agony and hell. Stop deceiving yourself that someday I'll get right. When I'm ready, I'll get right. Make it today. Listen to Edwards. He says, There are none in hell but what have been haters of God, and so have procured his wrath and hatred on themselves, and there they shall continue, get this, to hate him forever. See, if you reject Christ today, you can say, well, I have regard for God. I've heard great things about God. I kind of love God, you know. No, you are a hater of God if you do not come to Him on His terms. And so get right with Him. I beg you, my friend, run to Jesus. His arms are open today. Opportunity is wide open. Turn from your sin. Hate it. Forsake it. 
Talk to one of us. If you can't sort these things out, we will guide you and direct you. But for Christians, brethren, let us long for this day of bliss that will be coming maybe sooner for some of us than others. Just a few things to think about. Long to come to a fuller knowledge of God. A fuller understanding of His glory. In this life, our brain is so finite and so limited. It's like a, a personal computer, you know, 50 years, 40 years ago compared to what the cheapest smartphone is now. It's just such a vast difference. And, and so too for us, we're so limited. But do we long to worship Him not only in this life, but in the life to come in purity? As David says, one thing I have asked of the Lord, one thing, that's all I want, and this I shall seek. What is it that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life? To behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. Think, of the new bodies that you will receive in glory. Those of us who have various pain and back issues and migraines and a a, a litany of other physical traumas that we endure and we carry in this life because of our this sin-cursed world, there will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. Tears will be wiped away. Listen to C.S. Lewis. We must, I'm afraid, Recognize that as we grow older, we become like old cars. More and more repairs, more and more replacements are necessary. We must look forward to the fine new machines in the future. That is the latest resurrection model, which is waiting for us in the divine garage. Isn't that true? You know, you got this, this part replaced, that part replaced, and all this type of thing. And in the divine garage, what a glorious thing. But then, thirdly, to be delivered finally from this sin-cursed life. One day, we will see Him face to face. We won't be plagued with our own sin. Even if it's just in the mind or whatever, we won't be plagued with that. And listen to Edwards again from his great sermon. Oh, what a joy there will be! springing up in the hearts of the saints after they have passed through this wearisome pilgrimage and be brought into this paradise. Here is joy unspeakable, indeed full of glory, joy that is humble, holy, and rapturing, and divine in its perfection. I want you to think about it for a moment. Think about the most difficult trials that you've had endure this past year. Maybe difficult relationships, difficult health trials, difficult workplace situations. Maybe you've been plagued with depression. I want you to think for a moment that all of that will be taken away in this great day. But we are still here for the here and now. As much as we want to long for heaven, we have to say with Paul, not that I have already attained this or have already become perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. You see that? Not that I've attained it. We haven't attained it yet, but one thing, we press on. My dear friends, if only... We could live with our hearts in heaven even for a few minutes a day in holy communion with Him and in reading and prayer. What a difference that would make on our perspective as we go about the things that God has called us to do. Last quote from Edwards. Every saint in heaven is a flower in the garden of God and His holy love is a fragrance of sweet odor that they all send forth with which they fill the bowers of the paradise above. Notice this. Every soul there is a note in some concert of delightful music that sweetly harmonizes with the other notes and all together blend into the most rapturous strains in praising God and the Lamb forever. That holy fragrance 
because we have been so transformed and now we know what this love is and there's there's no more sin and we can love purely and beautifully as well as all of the saints together with one mind i mean we have great unity here but there's still you know sometimes a differing mind but this will be one mind so that it's it's like an orchestra a perfect sounding orchestra with every note from every saint harmonizing perfect praise to the lamb Oh, but for now, let us lay aside every sin and encumbrance, Hebrews 12. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We run faithfully, we run diligently in this life, but we fix our eyes on Jesus because we know someday we will see him face to face. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you helped this man at least in some way stammer through profound truths. I pray that some of it made sense, and I pray that your people are built up and edified, that they long for that great day. Lord, make us pure worshipers of you. Loosen our grip from the carnal cares of this world. Help us to reflect and to remember what things are really important in this life. And Lord, help us to be a people that are busy about doing the things that you've called us to, to be a light unto others, to share the good news of the gospel, to preach the the great good news of salvation by Christ through faith, Oh, Lord, we pray that you would help us. And Lord, we rejoice for the great work that you continue to do among us. And we thank you for Daniel and the work that you have done in his heart over these working with the elders this past year and just discerning his profession of faith. And Lord, we thank you that it is good, it is solid. He grieves over his sin, longs to please you. And Lord, we thank you for the work that you have done, and we look forward to hearing his testimony in just a moment and to see him baptized upon profession of faith. Lord, we rejoice in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.